BiblicalTraining.org provides a comprehensive biblical education from world-class professors to encourage spiritual growth in the church for free. In this podcast, we'll be sharing lectures and having conversations about biblical topics that matter to you today. If you find these episodes helpful, please give us a good rating on iTunes and share them with your friends and networks. What we've tried to do is to describe the theology in kind of the categories that Jesus' own ministry is presenting. Now, they fit and slide very easily into the categories of systematic theology. It isn't hard to see Jesus' theology of community and go, oh, I'm talking about ecclesiology here. But at the same time, I think it helps us to think through these categories in the categories that Jesus gives us. And the Gospels give us as they give us their presentation of Him. Now, since Jesus rarely used the term church, basically only appears in one Gospel at two points. I call this new corporate entity the community of the new era. You might call it the way, to use the language of Acts. What's important to understand about this is that this new community in its early existence did not see itself as non-Jewish. It's sometimes said, in fact, if, if I were to have an exam in this class as a kind of final exam day, and I were to th- say, come and be prepared to answer certain essay questions on the life and ministry of Jesus. If I gave a final exam, I'm not going to, so you can relax, all right? But if I were to give a final exam, one of the questions that would almost for sure be on it would be assess this statement. Jesus came to establish the church. True or false? The flip side of it would ask you to explain how and why we talk about the church today. And what I mean by that question, of course, is was Jesus' intention in one sense to come and establish an entity that was completely distinct from Judaism. He knew what he was heading to, and he knew what would come out of what he was doing. But if you ask yourself, as you look at the Gospels, does he go to the disciples and say to them, I want you to start a completely new deal? Okay, It's very clear that's not what he's about. That's how we tend to think of the church. We tend to think of the church as something completely distinct from Judaism. But in fact, the church is very much rooted in Judaism. In fact, John says it this way. John's Gospel says it this way. Salvation is of the who? The Jews. So, there is a sense in which the new community, or the community of the new era, or the way, whatever you want to see it, is really a natural extension of where a faithful Judaism should take Jews. Another way to say it is, if you're a good Jew, you will become a Christian. By the way, that's very hard on Jewish ears. But that is the emphasis in Acts. You think through the speeches of Acts that are made as we move from place to place, the emphasis is, God made certain promises to our fathers, which... Jesus represents the realization of in one way or another. The Spirit has come as God has promised. 
Therefore, you can know that God made him both Lord and Christ. The promises of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled in your midst through the activity of the servant. That's Acts 3. First category was Acts 2. We see Philip share with the Ethiopian eunuch. And what does he share? Isaiah 53 is the realization of what God was talking about. So there's an emphasis in these messages about how Jesus is the proper completion of what Judaism hoped. Paul says this in Romans 10. Christ is the telos of what? The law. That's where the law should take you. If you really are sensitive to Torah and a Torah observant, you should end up on the Jesus Interstate Highway. Exactly right. In Messianic synagogues. Yes, exactly right. Now there's a danger here, and the danger is that in the attempt to preserve their Jewishness and their community, they can risk becoming too attached to the rest of the church, the Gentile church, and one of the great witnesses that Jesus is supposed to provide about what the church is and to be is the reconciliation that takes place between Jews and Gentiles. But having said that, what the church lost, and they lost it in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, this sense of connection to their Jewish roots. It came the reaction of the Judaizers. It came as a reaction to, to the rabbinic rejection of the claims of the church, etc. There are all kinds of rational reasons for it. The destruction of the temple, which led to the chaos in Judaism. There are a variety of things that contributed to it. But the point is, the church should never have lost sight and should never lose sight of those roots. It's why the early chapters of Acts are so interesting. Because you've got here you've got an early church that's come to Jesus. It's clear God has begun a new thing, and yet they're still hanging out at the temple. They don't see themselves as having left Judaism. In fact, I would argue that the book of Acts is really an explanation that goes something like this. Christianity may seem like a new religion, but it's actually quite old. It's rooted in the God of Abraham. And it isn't that we are something new. We were forced to become something distinct because the Jewish people to whom we were originally sent and their leadership forced us out. We did not come with the intention of building a separate religion. We came with the intention of being the completion of what God had promised. And that's actually what we think we are. Things could have been very, very different. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean that Gentiles aren't included because the commission was to go out into the world. So you're still going to have Gentile inclusion. But what you wouldn't have had is this distance that emerged between the synagogue and the church. But the fact is, is that what the church sought to make Christianity didn't actually take place. Okay, in this, in this sense... Had Judaism responded as she should have, all Judaism would be Christian. That's the point you're making. Okay, that's precise. That's right, and that's precisely the point. But the but that's right. But 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 part of the equation is what did not happen. 
did all of Judaism respond to the message? No. So what did we end up with? We ended up not with believing Israel. Okay, we didn't end up with believing Israel in a church. You know what we ended up with? We ended up with a remnant in the church. And the remnant in the church is the bridge between the old era, the new era, and the future era. Remnant of believing Jews. This is the language of Romans 10. God always has a remnant. So I did end up with a separate institution. Sociologically, the church is not Judaism. And the church, even though it is, and I don't have any problem with saying this, even though the church is spiritual Israel, it functions and has the role that Israel had in the old era. It is the repository where the promises are now reside. It is the locus where revelation, the full revelation of God can be seen. It is the place where the preaching of God's message resides, etc. The church is the spiritual Israel. The church is not Israel because Israel itself today is split between the remnant that believes and, if I can say it this way, detached branches that are still out there. Okay? The theology that we have doesn't deal with the intention. The theology that we have deals with this reality. Here's the problem. The difference between a Reformed and a Dispensationalist is this. The Reformed person says, the church is the new Israel, and therefore, ethnic Israel no longer matters in the program of God, generally speaking. Now, there are a few Reformed people, we talked about this the other day, there are a few Reformed people who hold out a future for ethnic Israel. That one day, ethnic Israel will respond. And they put that within a Reformed model. Okay? There are some of those who exist. But most Reformed theologians say, the church is the new Israel. The church is Israel. End of story. Now. Don't even think about an ethnic Israel. Don't even think about an ethnic Israel being restored. Israel is just one of the many nations out there that needs to be evangelized. There is no continuing special role for Israel to continue into the future. They're no different than Greeks and Italians and Spaniards. Whereas a dispensationalist will say, just let me finish the idea. Dispensationalists will say, yes, the church is the institution of God today and functions like Israel does. Or did. Like Israel. That's right. Functions like Israel. It is not everything that the church is, is not all that Israel is. Why? Because there is in the program of God a future for this group that Romans 9 to 11 talks about. Talks about the possibility of the natural branches being grafted back in at some point in the future. And dispensationalists don't want the church or anybody else to lose sight of this. Now, a Reformed person who sees a future for ethnic Israel is actually very, very close to a dispensationalist theologically. There's very little that separates them. The difference would be that I can think about and conceive of a future for ethnic Israel without thinking about a national Israel that is at the center of a millennium. That's where the difference comes in. Go ahead. 
It's a good question. And the answer would be, yes, there would be, because dispensationalism would be in place. Okay, Israel, the very future that God promised to Israel in the Old Testament would then have been realized, rather than being realized in a millennium. Okay? Well, there wouldn't be two dispensations, one of the church and one of millennium. It would all have been taken care of in one deal. It's a good question. Even though I hate answering hypothetical questions. Because it didn't happen. It's a little bit like asking, what if Adam had not sinned? Would have saved us all a lot of grief. That's the answer to that question. That's exactly right. It's one of those possible worlds I can conceive of, but that wasn't the option that God decided to, to work with. Okay, so how much good does it do me? Schmatz. All right. Anything else? Uh-huh. That's right. Rabin, which is basically rabbinic Judaism. Or rabbinic Judaism or the reaction to rabbinic Judaism. Because actually there are Judaisms today. What I'm saying is, is that basically the message that went into the synagogues from the early church is, if you are a good Jew and believe God's promises, you will embrace Israel's Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. That was the message. Was beginning to develop. Okay? You, weren't, you weren't to full rabbinic Judaism yet, because what produced full rabbinic Judaism was the destruction of the temple. You had to completely reorganize your religion. Think about this. Okay, We, we don't think about this enough. Judaism was a religion whose calendar and worship was built around a single temple. Think about everything related to Judaism that revolves around the temple and then take the temple away. What does that mean for your faith? It's got to be totally reorganized, right? Okay, That's what you're dealing with in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The whole thing's got to be rebuilt on a completely different basis. It would be a little bit like, the closest analogy we can get to is that God was so pleased with how the size of the nuclear option. And the nuclear option wasn't to eliminate Christians, but was to eliminate church buildings and start from scratch again. So you woke up tomorrow and every church building around the country suddenly vanished. There was no place to meet. There were no parking. Well, there might be parking places, but there was no building to walk into, etc. And now Christians had to organize without any of those buildings being present. Did that change the way people engage in their faith to not have those buildings anymore? Yeah, probably. Go to Buddy's bar. Buddy, Buddy's ready. Trouble is, is that he doesn't know that if God does that, his bar is going too. Okay, because that spot's been sanctified by Buddy's presence. Do you see the point? So Judaism itself is being completely restructured shortly after this period in which the church is beginning to go out and preach the Gentiles at the same time. It's a chaotic period. Go ahead. It's both simultaneously. I mean, Jesus is going out saying, these are new wineskins. Because the presence of the Messiah who is divine, would change the entire shape of the faith. This is a little bit of an exaggeration, but take a shot at it. You're now no longer oriented around a single building. 
you are now reoriented around a person who put you in touch with the living God. That's the difference, and it's a radical difference. It's a radical change. So Christianity, in its original design, and even in its earliest preaching, did not see itself as radically breaking from what Judaism of the Hebrew Scriptures was and was supposed to be. It did see itself very much breaking with what Judaism was becoming through the rabbis. That's your tension. That's right. And that is a transformation that also is interesting because again, in the earliest church, did they stop going to the temple? Did Paul stop going to the synagogue? No, at least not initially. We tend to think there was Judaism, Christ came, and He went to build this whole new huge apparatus over here. Now, what happened is the apparatus emerged because of the reaction of the original audience. What Acts is arguing is, even though Christianity appears to be new, it's actually quite old. Now, that's important to an ancient. Because to an ancient, in the ancient culture, it's not what's new that is great, it's what's old. Particularly on religion. It's what's time-tested, what has been around for a while. Okay, which has sea legs. It has some experience. So Acts is really trying to make the argument, look, we did not go out to consciously form a church. We were forced to form a church by the reaction that we met in the original audience for whom the Gospel was originally intended to be part of the recipients. We are not anti-Jewish. We are as pro-Jewish as it can be. Because if you believe Moses and the prophets, you really believe them. Or at least, you'll become a follower of Messiah. This is like the question I got earlier about wouldn't the empty tomb have convinced them? Absolutely not. They've already made the judgment about what they think about Jesus. They rejected Him. Once a religious ideological idea has taken grip of the soul, it's very, very difficult to loosen its grip. Absolutely. You ask yourself, I'm thinking about Islam now, how can you have a religion can be so violent? Well, it's because the core concepts of that religious faith have taken hold of the soul of a lot of people. They don't see the world the way you do. They don't evaluate what goes on around you like you do. So they, it doesn't go through the same grid. Which means that when you take the product through the production line, it doesn't exit the same car. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. and we rebuilt the faith along ethical religious lines. It's clear God didn't want us to have a temple. So we don't need sacrifices. And what we did is we went about the business of trying to live as faithfully as Jews without a temple as we could. For some people, for some Jews, they're looking for the day when the temple comes back and there's something missing in their religion until it happens. That's why you see pictures of very Orthodox Jews standing at the Wailing Wall. 
because it represents a remnant of the presence of the temple for whose reconstruction they long. That's why when you go to Jerusalem and you go through the Jewish quarter and you go down the steps to go into the area that's in front of the western wall, you will meet a nine-armed menorah in gold that is already forged for what the sign in front of it says is the third temple. Yes, because of all the attention paid to the nature of the creation and the early chapters of Genesis and that kind of thing, I think it is an attempt to fuse Neoplatonic philosophy with a Judaism that has reacted to the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, it is a it is an attempt to fuse Neoplatonic Greek philosophy, which has this dualism of it in it, with a reaction to the story of creation in Genesis. It makes it more of a Greek story than a Jewish story. No, Gnosticism is not necessarily concerned about the country and the temple because Gnosticism is coming of a reaction to diaspora Judaism. They are. That's right. And what the theodicy is, is there's this kind of battle going on, this battle royal going on between a fallen world, which is so totally corrupt, God's hands are removed from it. And the heavenly reality, pure spiritual reality, to which one day God will return the faithful. The answer to that is yes, but more importantly, it's a wholesale rejection of the creation. There are philosophical elements in Kabbalah that are similar to influences that exist in Gnosticism, but it's not the same. There are elements of Jewish mysticism that start to surface in the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. But the real development of Kabbalah is a little lighter. You're moving into the medieval period. Now, we didn't get past. Since Jesus rarely used the term church, I call this new corporate entity the community of the new era. It is the community's character and calling that are more important to him than its form. Now, I'm going to read that sentence again. It is the new community's character and calling that are more important to him than its form. Our churches today spend a lot of time wrestling with, debating, discussing, separating over the form of church. Jesus was far more interested, not about what happened within the four walls of a church building, but what happened to the community and what character it reflected as it engages in the world. Far more interested in that. How much discussion did Jesus, or the early church for that matter, leave us about what should happen in a worship service? We know we have hymns. We know we have teaching. We know we have liturgy. We know that they met in homes to do it is understandable because they weren't a large enough sociological unit to meet anywhere else. When they outgrew homes, then all that had to develop. Okay, Or else someone had a very, very big house. But there is much more time spent on the character of what the community is supposed to reflect and the calling and mission that the church is supposed to carry out. We have managed to reverse the emphasis. 
And so people don't see the New Testament church. Now they see a well-organized machine that has a lot of parallels to, in a religious sphere, of what someone might meet if they were an MBA. And that's not to take a shot at church being organized and thinking through how it has to deliver what it has to deliver to a community. But the point that I'm making is, is that we usually spend far more time thinking about, worrying about, and engaging on issues of the form of how we do church than we do on what the church should be doing. Okay, the church didn't form so that we could figure out how to do church. The church exists so the church can do the mission of God. Okay, let's talk about soteriology real quick. By the way, that may have been an application back there, but don't think about it too hard. Okay, because you'll get my hairline. You'll look at the church and go, uh, 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 and get my hairline. Buddy, I'm just warning you. Okay. But you went to a bar, so that means you're not pulling as hard. That's where Jesus, that's right, Jesus would have gone right there. Jesus' mission, to call sinners to repentance, he says it in a variety of ways, or to call people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or the picture of the initiative taken in Luke 15. Or the call, the commission expressed in Luke, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be preached to all the world beginning from Jerusalem. By the way, there's another interesting thing that happens in Luke-Acts. In Luke-Acts, religiously speaking, the center of the world at the beginning of Luke-Acts is Jerusalem. By the end of Luke-Acts, guess where the center of the world has gone to? Rome. Paul has to get to Rome. Not Antioch. Antioch sends him out. But where does he end up? Ready to preach the gospel to Caesar in Rome. What does it take to get there? A whole heck of a lot of work. You ever ask yourself why Acts 27 is in Acts? That long sea voyage with all the detail of how difficult it is to get to Rome? That's because from the perspective of Jerusalem, Rome is towards the ends of the earth. And it takes one long, hard slog to get there. The failure to repent leads to judgment. The call to faith is something that's emphasized in several passages, whether we're talking about the centurion, the paralytic, the woman with the hemorrhage, the boy with the unclean spirit, the two blind men, the Gentile woman, Jairus' daughter, or the sinful woman who anoints Jesus. Every one of those passages mentions faith. Interestingly, John never uses the noun faith. But he does use the verb believe. Now in some passages, it's a short-lived faith that's described. A short-lived belief. But the call to believe is John's way to talk about this, but the noun faith doesn't appear anywhere in John. That is interesting. Faith. The key text in John is John 6, 60-68. You have the words of eternal life. And faith is seen as abiding quality in John 15. Oh, let me do one other thing before I leave this. And I may, I may have a later slide to deal with it, but I want to be sure I cover it. And if I don't, I need to cover it now. Let me talk about the relationship between three terms. Faith, repent, and turn. 
These are three of your key terms in terms of response terms that you see. Not just in the Gospels, but also in Acts. When you see how the early church takes out the message that Jesus delivered. These are three terms that work like a Venn diagram. Any one of them is an adequate explanation for what the response to the Gospel should be. But they emphasize different things. Repent is a word that starts out from the perspective of where you are. You have, to use the words, a change of mind. Actually, the Hebrew idea undergirding the Greek word repent is the word shuv, which itself means turn. So these two are very close to one another. But repent basically means a change of mind, a change of direction. To repent is to make a left turn, a right turn, or a U-turn. It's not to go in the same direction you've been going with a kind of kleine pause, German for a short pause. I have a kleine pause here. Okay, I repented. Now I'm going the same direction I was going. Okay, that's not repentance. It's a change of mind. But this is from where you start out from. You change your mind versus where you were. Turning is the process. Okay, to have a change of mind, you've got to have a change of direction. So you turn. And when you turn, where you end up is with faith. Faith is where you land. You end up believing. That's why this ends up being the comprehensive term we see more often throughout the whole New Testament. Because in repenting, you end up with faith. Having turned. So as I've suggested, any one of these terms is perfectly adequate to be the response to the gospel message. It's just that it emphasizes different things. Another term that comes in this list is receive. But as many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. This is another good term. Because this has to do with the idea of receiving the message, of welcoming it, of actually of embracing it. If I were to give this a synonym today, it would be embracing the Gospel. To receive the Gospel is to embrace the Gospel. Faith is not a momentary act. I don't believe in God and stop believing. I don't believe in the Gospel and stop believing. If I have faith in the Gospel, I am believing the Gospel. So it's not a momentary act. Now we tend to talk about it like it's a momentary act because the beginning of faith represents a transition of someone out of death into new life. Okay, And brings what we call justification. And so we think about the decision for Christ or however we word it when someone begins to exercise faith. But the faith they begin to exercise is the faith they're supposed to live with from that point on. It isn't the ticking of a box and said, deja vu, I've done that. Been there, done that. As I said, turning is not a kleine pausa. Okay, I've done that. Now I'll just keep going the direction I was going. That's not biblical faith. Calling the disciples in the twelve. Five key texts here. This is the 
formulation of the restored Israel on the one hand that also is the base of what the New Testament preaches is the church on the other. Ephesians will come back and say, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets are what? The foundation. But what Jesus is doing, is re, what he was intending to do was to reconstitute Israel. We see this in Mark 1, Matthew 4, in the call with the catch of fish in Luke 5, in the discussion about who Jesus hangs out with as he talks about Levi and Matthew and goes to the banquet to deal with them, that following him is a priority that's supposed to be above everything else, so don't wait to bury your parents. Or Luke 14, 24 and 25, Consider the cost. And if, if the other person's stronger than you, then sue for peace. You need to sue for peace with God. The 12 points the intentionality of a new community for Jesus. By the way, the 12 is a pretty interesting group. You've got a zealot in there and a tax collector. Imagine bringing them onto the same team and saying, who are you going to vote for this year? Think about where they would have been politically and socially in relationship to each other. They may have had a knife out for one another. At least the zealot might have. So Jesus' collection, even Jesus' collection of comrades has this unusual variety about it. Fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. That would have been an interesting town hall meeting. Discipleship. We've talked about the disciple meaning learner. Interestingly, the term disciple only appears in the Gospels. We don't pick it up in the epistles. And it's widely used. 72 times in Matthew, 46 times in Mark, but Mark is about half as long as Matthew. 37 times in Luke, 78 times in John. Those who follow Jesus are learners. That is one of their basic characteristics. Why? Because God is in the business of changing us until He's done with the job. And by the way, God is a long-term employer. That change takes time. And yet one of the more interesting features of the church is that the word change sometimes is almost a four-letter word. Something I do not understand. We're as committed as tradition to tradition as a church. That's the way we've done it. The way we've always done it. Yes, change in a person and also change in how we function as communities. Being sufficiently flexible, not in what we believe, okay, because it's what we believe that brings us into change, but in reminding ourselves that we haven't quite always got there yet. Don't ever lose a dynamic for reflection and change. You know what the, the Reformed tradition, this, this, we've said a lot about the Reformed tradition that implies a negative, and I don't like that. You know what one of the things the Reformed tradition says about what the Reformation taught the church? Always reforming. Now that's a good thought. Always reforming. Committed to being changed and to changing until God's finished with the job. And God is a long-term employer. That job is not done until we are glorified. And if you have any doubts if you are glorified, 
ask your spouse. The job is not yet done. That's why I married Omniscience. She reminds me, periodically, that God is still working on me. And she's right. I need to be reminded. In fact, there's a lot of renovation going on. In fact, the sign that each of us should be bearing is, God is quite at work here. Renovation underway. Sorry for the disturbance. Please excuse our work. God is quite busy here. And then underneath it in smaller print, and will be for a while. This is a long-term project. It's a total commitment. It's a process of growth and instruction. What we see in Mark is the way most of us are. To use the words of that great theologian Chris Berman, we are stumbling and bumbling disciples. It will entail suffering, taking up a cross, an unsettled life in the world. If you want acceptance by the world, don't sign up. Many of our churches are plagued by indifference because what a lot of people want is acceptance by the world. Characterized by forgiveness, a community of forgiveness, a community of love, and a community of service. Yes, most people, when they go to a church, the way they assess it is, what is it giving to me? If you're going to lead the church, you realize that one of the things that you're going to have to do is to lead in helping people to change their expectations of what a church should be, what you look for from a church, or better, what the church should be doing rather than what the church gives me and how I can contribute to what the church should be doing. The most dangerous innovation in a church is the chair because what it teaches people to do is to sit on their duff. Now, if you preach this, you may be selling vacuum cleaners. It's a message people are struggling to hear. But the beauty is the committed who get it will get it and get going. They'll fold up the chairs and they'll say, church is not what I do when I'm sitting on my duff. They won't have the disease of the church, which in German is called Zitzfleisch. Fancy way of saying sitting on your flesh. Obviously, the parables play a key role in the instruction related to discipleship in following God. Now, when we come to community and we think about community or we think about groups, really there are three groups that are the concern of the Gospels. There's the community that Jesus forms, there is Israel, and there are the Gentiles. Jesus ministers to, people are sent to preach for or on behalf of Israel in one way or another. Let me get to the end of the slide and I'll take the question. And all these passages that we say to or for Israel talk about the mission being to Israel, for Israel, in one way or another. But it also is to and for the nations. We have the example of the centurion's faith that is unlike any that he's seen in Israel. There's the Syrophoenician woman. Great passage. One of the few people to go duke it up with Jesus and walk away, not KO'd. The Gadarene demoniac. Gadara is a Gentile region. It's part of the Decapolis, the ten cities. And if you look at a map of the ten cities, even today, 
Many of those cities are located on the other side of the Jordan. The thankful foreigner. The banquet in which people who end up celebrating the meal were not among the originally invited. The cleansing of the temple with its statement that the temple will one day be a place of prayer for the nations, and that's what it should be. Rooted very much in Old Testament promise. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Biblical Training Podcast. If you like what you heard and want to see more, visit our website, biblicaltraining.org, to access over 130 free classes. You can also download our app in the App Store or Google Play. We are a nonprofit ministry and depend on donations. If you're able, please click the Donate button on our website and donate today. Thank you.